Talk About Whiteness podcast. I'm your host, Miriam Francois, and to all of our listeners, welcome. Thank you so much for joining us. This is a space where we explore the meaning of whiteness in the context of conversations around race and racism, and as the structure pertains to different areas of our lives. Why whiteness? Well, very simply, because as someone racialized as white myself, I want to explore the meaning and impact of whiteness at our current juncture. What does whiteness mean and does it matter? Every episode, I'm joined by a guest who offers unique insights into these questions and many more. Today, I'm joined by a man whose work bridges the gap between the academic world and grassroots activism in the educational sector. Dr. Ornette D. Clennon is a professor at the Federal University of Amazon, whose research focuses on themes of decolonial community and liberation psychology. He is also head of Institute and Director of Research at MacTree, MEEP Academy Community Training and Research Institute, which provides educational support to children and young adults. With a background in critical race studies, Ornette's engaged scholarship saw him awarded the 2011 NCCPE New Partnership Award. He's also a widely published author. His most recent book, Black Scholarly Activism Between the Academy and Grassroots, a Bridge for Identities and Social Justice explores the quote-unquote invisible impact whiteness has on the lived black experience in the UK. In addition to his scholarly work, I must also add that Dr. Clennon is a prolific producer and musical artist. You can find his tracks under his alter ego, Revelation Collective. Uh, Dr. Clennon, welcome. Thank you so much for joining us. Thank you for having me. <laughs> um, so first off, I have to say whiteness in education is a theme that many uh, listeners have asked me to circle back to. It's clear that for many people, the educational system replicates existing structures of power, forms of inequality and even prejudice. And despite a lot of attention around some of these issues in the media, um, particularly the decolonial movement and the impact that that's having, it seems the problem isn't really going away. So I want to talk about first off schools, if that's OK, and then maybe we can talk about universities in a bit. But let's start with schools. And you direct an institute which offers concrete educational support. You're clearly very invested in community education, and I suspect there's a good reason for that. So yes. why has it been so important for you to be involved in this kind of work? Well, um, it comes from personal experience, really. So having gone through um, the mainstream education system as um, a person of colour, as a black man or as a black boy back in the day, I experienced the sort of whiteness of, of education and its sort of uh, debilitating effects that it can have on black people at first hand really and as, as did my family obviously as they supported me through that so it really did fill me with a passion to make changes and to have this interest in education because for me it is about making sure that people all people have equal opportunities to progress to where they need to be or to fulfill their potential. And in my personal experience, in the education system, that's not granted to everybody. 
Yeah, and we can we can get into some of the stats, which I think, you know, for anyone who hasn't followed this will be shocking. But anyone who follows this closely and has done for more than a minute will not be surprised. But I think the consistency of the problem is is really where I really want to try and focus in. And, you know, it's like we keep talking about this and yet the problem doesn't really seem to be changing. So. First off, maybe for people who who are listening to this and who are saying, well, you know, what is the actual problem? What is whiteness in mainstream education? What does it look like? How is it causing harm? Yeah, Um, that's a a really big question, particularly if we're going to try and answer that in sort of layperson's terms. But I will give it a go. Thank you. Um, So whiteness, first and foremost, isn't about race or skin colour. It's about um, a system of control and societal organisation. So if I if I digress and, and just take a step back historically, it used to be about skin colour in terms of how um, the modern world as we know it today, um, which originated from um, European colonialism, which was spurred on economically by slavery and The reason why that happened is because whiteness was needed to justify the enslavement of black bodies for labour. And that was the first time that um, blackness or back in the day Africanness, but throughout the the centuries it became blackness, became equated with labour and free labour, exploited labour. So the so whiteness back in the day enabled that to happen and our institutions were built on whiteness and the profits of slave labour. But through the centuries, the the market template for those relationships between those racialized as white and those racialized as black, they've dissolved and they're no longer as important as they literally were um, in their inception. So it's more about and power and the legacies of power and structures that whiteness um, embodies and people's relationship to that structure. So that's why um, some particularly African-American scholars talk about um, proximity to whiteness. So they don't necessarily mean skin colour, although colorism in itself is an issue and is a hangover from colonial um, days, but they are specifically, I, I think, how I read that term, talking about um, how, talking about their market positions in relation to whiteness and the benefits that they may or may not accrue from their market positions. So, if we apply that to education, and we realise that it's not about not having enough black teachers or representation. What we're actually talking about is education being a nation's way of citizenizing its citizens, sort of indoctrinating them or, or, uh, yes, indoctrinating them into the ways of the land, if you will. So if we look at it sort of really, really cynically, in order to police a nation, obviously we need the law first and foremost, and we need and people to enforce the law. So those are the obvious kind of ways of um, policing a nation in the image of what that nation wants to be. But the second way of doing that, which is more insidious, is to actually educate the nation in the mores of the land, whatever that 
may be. So in terms of whiteness, if we're looking at a structure of systemic control, which, as I said, originated from uh, a sort of a racial locus, but it isn't anymore, and it sort of morphed into what we call capitalism and more recently neoliberalism um, as a sort of organising structure, then in order to have people um, adhere to the system and to agree and to serve the system, you need to inculcate them from an, an early age as possible into the ways of the system. Mm-hmm. So the education system actually is um, a guardian of the state, always has been. So even if we talk in, about uh, sort of imperial days when um, we ruled the way, so to speak, well, we did, but yeah, nothing to be kind of proud of. The education system was arranged in such a way that those elites who benefited from a Victorian uh, classical education were directly educated to rule empire. Mm-hmm. And those other people who didn't receive that elite education but were um, taught basic literacy and numeracy were kind of taught and equipped to work in the, the mills and the factories of mm-hmm. the day. So we can we can see education as an organising social entity um, even back in the day when we were so-called sort of in power in the world. But that echo of power and how power um, is created and maintained still lives with us within the educational system. And so for your average uh, child going into the system whose parents might not necessarily be aware of any of this history in depth because it necessarily isn't probably the version of history that we're all learning. Um, I'm just wondering what are some of the challenges, particularly uh, facing children who are not white from the whiteness of this system. So I know obviously people will think, well, school exclusions mm-hmm. uh, are, are one of the main areas. Yeah. Uh, there's also been uh, recently, uh, there was a, a report yet, uh, last year that the, the, the Guardian brought out for a young a young man who um, had been involved, if you recall, in calling out Mac, uh, Matt Hancock um, about the um, his father who had been a GP who died uh, of COVID oh, yeah. uh, at, at a time where he was requesting more PPE his name was Intisar Chowdhury and the year the year after that he actually um, basically did a call out on the internet saying you know um, anyone who'd experienced racism in school could you kind of flag it and he compiled mm-hmm. this dossier this this young man compiled this dossier of all of these like really clear instances you know not none of this sort of well you know it can be read in a mm-hmm. different way no no very very obvious instances of overt discrimination and prejudice against yep. children of color within schools Absolutely. and i suppose what was really shocking to me shouldn't be but was was the reaction of the schools mm-hmm. um so i'm just wondering you know if there are people who work within education listening to this and who are thinking how are we perpetuating whiteness in the way that we respond to, let's say, inc- incidents in our school where students complain about racism, mm-hmm. for example? Mm-hmm. I think the answer to that has to be twofold. So there's the a macro system within which teachers and educators work within, which is really, really hard to change. And I don't think we can change it from a school 
level, we kind of have to campaign and, and look at it from a government level. But in terms of the macro system, we can, if we go back to the 80s when uh, new public management um, was sort of instituted, basically where private companies were contracted to deliver elements of public services and the sort of privatization agenda um, was created and competition within that market was created, that kind of hit schools with the National League table, which I think was in 1989, I can't quite remember the year, but it was in the 80s. So mm. at that point when schools became um, set within an educational market of competition in order to attract parents and, and be sort of uh, placed high up in the league, you did have this um, lack of emphasis or this de-emphasis on race as a as a as a metric so before that you sort of had race which was really sort of coming into the fall with the the riots in the in the early 80s um Mossai, Toxteth um obviously um Brixton and other um, places and with a seminal um, reports like the Scarman report and the Swan Report, which were which were looking at the uh, underachievement of back in the day, they would call us West Indian children, and they did, um, in, especially in Scarman, um, admit to institutional racism within the schools. There was this whole thing around that West West Indian children were as British as any other child, so they needed to be reflected in the then. G uh, O-levels and CSEs. So, you know, it was quite a big thing and quite daring for that report to say. But as the 80s sort of um, drew out, they be there became a de-emphasis on race as a particular factor as this new public management sort of took over and school competitions took over. So race began to be sort of shoved under the carpet and I guess sort of subsumed under this sort of class um, kind of um, discourse mm. to the detriment of um, young black kids who were still um, put into um, educationally subnormal units and stuff like that. Um, so that's sort of the macro sort of framework that we're working within and we are still in the shadow of that because we don't call them sin bins or educationally subnormal units we call them pupil referral units now and black children and children um, with special educational needs and disabilities are still disproportionately represented within those units and schools um, disingenuously off-roll their quote unquote, more difficult pupils into these units so that they can get better scores um, with their exams. So there's this whole kind of cynical um, market of education where performance and competition is what dominates. So that's the macro, which we can't do too much about. But on the sort of mezzo and micro level, teachers, being aware of that can begin to take control of their own classrooms. So in the um, foundation curriculum, so that's key stage one, key stage two, what many teachers perhaps don't fully appreciate, I think they do, but I don't think they fully appreciate it, is that 
there's a huge potential for customizing that curriculum. So, and what I mean by that is at key stage one, key stage two, if you were competent and confident and had the will, and I guess the support of your senior leadership team, you could teach a really inclusive, culturally inclusive curriculum. So by using thematic learning where, for, for instance, one term. So in key stage two, for instance, in history, they've got to learn about empires. Now, there's nothing stopping them from stopping a school from saying in the first half term, we're going to learn about European empires, including the British Empire and including Roman and, and uh, Greek empires in Term two, in half term two, we're going to apply that to the empires on the Indian subcontinent. In term three, we're going to um, apply that to the empires on the African continent. And term three, the empires in, in China. And sort of thematically really look at the different cultures that are required to be described and investigated within the national curriculum and they could theme that so for instance um, I think it's at in year four um, students have to learn about the history of where zero comes from um, so of course you could particularly if you were um, doing thematic learning across the school talk about um, zero coming from um, China and um, Latin America and then India and then the Muslim Arabic world and then coming into um, Rome and sort of the European world you could literally track the sort of cultural um, and intellectual journey of the concept of zero at school um, so it is so at key stage one and key stage two at the foundation level there is that flexibility to really talk about cultural heritage away from the oh we're going to celebrate um, Hanu uh, Hanukkah or we're going to celebrate Diwali but really talking about um, where these cultures fit in in terms of a world history. Now uh, key stage three going into GC, GCSE that's a bit harder because of the way in which subjects have been um, delineated within the curriculum but definitely pre KS3 that can be done and for our non-UK speaking people that's what age group are we talking about oh sorry yes yes okay. yeah so KS2 is um some seven-year-olds KS1 uh, uh sort of four-year-olds four five-year-olds oh, wow. yeah um KS3 starts when you're about 11 and then KS4 is when you're 15 and you're preparing for your GCSEs at 16. Okay, yeah. So at the primary level, so KS1 and KS2 are primary school, and then KS3, KS4, secondary school. Um, at the primary level, there is immense flexibility and potential for not teaching a counter narrative, but teaching a more inclusive, accurate narrative of world history, because that's what it's about. So yeah. imperial education, which we kind of are in, yeah. uh, is all about teaching a version of history that justifies the brutality that our past tells us we did in order to um, assume the power that we currently have now. 
So it's about sanitising and it's about creating a synthetic notion of unity for this national consciousness. And it's education that kind of carries, um, that does the intellectual heavy lifting of this sort of sanitising. So mm -hmm. what I'm saying is that at primary school, the curriculum already has room for a lot of that sanitising to be scrubbed away. Yeah. Of just the nature. But what stops primary schools from doing that primarily is teacher training. Yeah, so I was going to ask. Yeah. Yeah. So in the 80s, um, te te teacher training consisted of, as well as the usual sort of pedagogical um, things to kind of study, but issues around cultural competency and the politics of race and discrimination. But because of the this market move within the education sector that happened in the 80s where schools are meant to be competitive um, they, these issues have become sort of unpopular because these issues are messy and complex mm -hmm. and really yeah. nuanced and the market doesn't really do very well with nuance and messiness and, and complicatedness so it's sort of um, shoved all of that under the carpet so teacher training doesn't really um, have that have those elements as a focus anymore so even say PGCSE PGCE which focuses on primary the primary PGC postgraduate certificate of education um, which, which is what teachers have to get is that right yes. yeah, yeah. So when, when they graduate um, with their degrees they have to do another academic year nine months of a postgraduate certificate of education um, and they can specialise in primary education or secondary education. Got it. And um, so when they do their PGCE, even at primary, then because they're not taught these elements of nuance and messiness, which we could call sort of not critical race theory per se, because CRT is a specific methodology, but critical race studies, which is about um, is a much broader field of inquiry around race and discrimination and, and you know the intersection between race and gender has to be um, in there as well and more recently the intersection between race and ableism also has to be in there particularly from a school perspective we're fine mm. that's another thing um, then they're not equipped to have the confidence to explore these different cultures within the space that's afforded them in um, the foundation curriculum. So, so yeah, go. Yeah. yeah. Well, so just listening to you, so there'll be a lot of um, presumably teachers or educators or people even who with children in the educational yeah. system listening to this will be thinking, well, if you're teaching the history of empire and you only teach about the empire of one part of the world, mm -hmm. um, isn't that effectively a supremacist narrative it's like only one group of people achieved you know so-called great things and I say that so-called because obviously mm, mm. you know empires have caused huge harm in the world but the narrative of course is like look what was achieved you know exactly. Britain, Britain you know conquered you know what, what is it three quarters of the world yeah, yeah, yeah. Um, and, and so I'm just wondering whether um, you know we often when we have conversations around whiteness and around race there's a lot of resistance towards the idea of speaking of white supremacy no white supremacy is um you know something the Ku Klux Klan do it's something that yeah, you yeah. know 
yeah. the, the the really the the sort of skinheads on of the of the old BN, uh, BNP would would be involved in. But when you teach that one group of people are the only group of people that have achieved great unquote unquote great things, enough, yeah. is that a supremacist narrative? It is. It is. So white supremacy has two meanings. So the popular meaning in in popular discourse is the Ku Klux Klan and uh, the BNP and that sort of uh, overtly political um, uh, form of white supremacy. But white supremacy in its more intellectual um, discourse is about Eurocentrism and the primacy of um, European or Eurocentric history and knowledge and thinking which mm. kind of permeates all institutions. Um, so, and of course, um, that at the very tip of the iceberg can result in the BNP or the EDF or the Ku Klux Klan, obviously, but the that's just the tip of the iceberg and poking out over the water. The real kind of problem is how the our modern world system. So here, here's the thing, here's the thing. And this is what people find really hard to kind of get their heads around. White supremacy only exists if you truly believe that non-white people and black people in particular are somehow inferior or deficit. That's the underlying, that, that's the unpalatable underlying truth of white supremacy because if black people, and, that's, and I know it's it's not just black people, it's people of colour, but I'm, I'm going to specifically say black people in this sense because anti-blackness is a global phenomenon on all continents. Black people um, tend to be at the bottom <laughs> of the pyramid on all continents. So if we, if you truly believe that everybody's equal and black people are inherently equal to everyone else, black people inherently aren't deficit or have no deficits in particular areas, no more than anyone else, then you can't feel superior. But if you believe that black people have um, inherent deficits and are somehow inferior, that means then that all the disparities that you, you can see when you track the data, you don't see them as disparities, you see them as inherent deficits. Logical because, consequences, presumably. Yeah, exactly. Of, 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 of this course. underlying ideology. Yes, of course, of course. Yeah. Black boys underperform at school because they're not interested in education, because their parents aren't interested in education. Otherwise, they'll be pushing them a lot harder, mm. ignoring the fact that many parents, when they um, came over from the Caribbean, were educated in not just a British, but English school system, and who were passionate about education as a means yeah. of um, bettering their children's lives. So education in black communities is hugely important, which is why the supplementary school movement um, in black communities, which has been around for over 50 years, um, sprung up precisely because of this. But if you don't if you don't see that black people are like everyone else and are equal, then the disparities that you witness then become their responsibility and it becomes a sort of natural law. Mm. Yeah, and that's the, the basis of white supremacy. So it's not even about um, 
people um, being particularly racist or nasty or anything like that. It's just about how the system of whiteness that we live in has educated everyone to fundamentally see certain people as inferior because it then masks the fact that there are biases and discriminations that can be actively dealt with, but no one wants to deal with it. So and, yeah, and it's that that so, link that yeah. link is so important to emphasise, which is that the teachers themselves have been raised in a in an educational system which yeah. has centred European identity and therefore yes. normalised the idea that European yes. history, European ideas, European perspectives are the epitome somehow of human cogitation that, yeah, that yeah. there isn't anything beyond really worth studying apart from in a peripheral way yes. and then of course when they enter the educational system which is set up to replicate that model with yeah. any inculcating that to children and I think the harm that that does maybe to children who don't see their identities valorized who don't see mm -hmm. their identities um upheld in a way that really shows respect for their culture their history their identity i i mean it, it, it is it even measurable what that impact is and i i i i ask because when we look at some of the figures around exclusion so there was a, a 2021 study by the guardian and I, 2021 you know yeah, and this yeah. 2021 study Exclusion rates for Black Caribbean students in English schools are up to six times higher than those yeah. of their white peers in some local authorities. Yeah. Gypsy, Roma and traveller children yeah. were also excluded at much yeah. higher rates. Some Roma children were nine times more likely to be Absolutely. suspended. Yeah. And exclusion rates for mixed race, white and Black Caribbean students were more than four times higher than their white peers Absolutely. in several local authorities. Now, let's talk about, you know, it's teachers that are making these decisions and I'm it's not about kind of pointing the finger in a way that makes people feel bad it's about saying why is it that certain children seem to be singled out in this yeah. way and yeah. I can take some examples from my life where it seems apparent to me listening to a story where for example one of my friends who was excluded um at, at, from school at 15 uh, who is of a, a mixed Caribbean background. And when I heard the story, I just thought there is no way I would have been excluded for jokingly t saying to a teacher, well, let's see what happens after school, miss. Mm -hmm, it was mm -hmm. then turned into a threat mm -hmm. and made into a basis for actual physical harm being intended against a mm -hmm. teacher, a, a, a remark yeah, yeah. which yeah. You know, I mean, this is a 15 year old boy and he yes. had, you know, to, according to him, absolutely. It didn't even occur to him yes. that that's how his remark could be interpreted. That decision changed the course of his life. Yes. Now, he's yes. doing very well today. Thanks be to God. You know, yes. He's yes. but but it was a decision that could have gone very badly. Yes. For him. yes. Or My, because yes. teacher inherently linked uh, violence with black boys. That's, yes. that's the prism that that comment was heard through. So because we are inherently violent and kind of inherently unintelligent, all, all we're good for is kind of physical activities and sport or at a push, we're good for um, entertaining people. But we don't have any academic or intellectual, not even academic, but intellectual sort of acumen or, or potential 
and we're violent and hypersexual. So anything that we do is seen from is seen through that prism of deficit from the get go. And mm. teachers um, who, through no fault of their own, who are who have been educated um, in this system also view us through that prism. And this is so this is something that, you know, people who can actually hopefully listen. If, you, if you're listening to this and you're working in education, maybe there's little things that you can catch yourself. You know, I mean, I heard this remark, but can it be interpreted differently? Yes. You know, why am I making assumptions? You know, my neighbor has a 15 year old uh, daughter who is getting ready for um, I wish it must be actually a bit old. She's 17 now because she's doing her GCSEs doing a GCSE in chemistry and mm. they are of an Ethiopian background uh her teacher said to her that she wouldn't be good enough to do chemistry mm -hmm. that she should she'd be better off choosing art now mm. she's got a whole career in her mind that she wants to pursue that requires chemistry and as far as I can see she's a really hard-working studious young woman I don't understand why that child is being told to pursue an A-level in art mm -hmm. when she clearly wants to do chemistry. Mm -hmm. Is that the teacher being racist in yes, your opinion? Yes, yes, yes. I mean, I had teachers at, at my school say that I would never get into university. This was as late on as in the sixth form, um, writing me off. And obviously I did. Um, but it wasn't now really... a professor at university. Yeah. 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 <laughs> <But> <laughs> Let's point that out. Yeah. 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 It wasn't through any kind of thanks to them. But I have to say that I did have support from other people, obviously, um, that weren't in school, that weren't my school teachers. But my school teachers in particular, in particular, did write me off. And that writing off of people of colour is still going on. I just wanted to say in terms of whiteness. Yes, well, that. We can see whiteness isn't um, is no longer linked to a racial locus, because if we look at the um, temporary and permanent exclusion rates, there are three ethnic groups that um, feature predominantly in both temporary and permanent exclusions. Those are black Caribbean young people, Irish people and uh, people from the traveler community. So we can see that whiteness is about because the the people from the the uh, traveling community objectively are white in this part of the world they are yet like the Irish were maybe a century ago weren't uh, politicized as white mm -hmm. and that still kind of had really and still has for the the, the traveler community dreadful consequences of not being um, politically white and that sort of politicization of whiteness has somehow morphed into a racial perception of whiteness that, that mm -hmm. has been imprinted upon these ostensibly white people but they're not mm -hmm. treated as white people so Italians were treated like this in America before they became white Irish people were treated like this here before they became white so we can see that this this notion of whiteness isn't really racial it's about power and certain groups over time who are ostensibly racialized as white weren't always white mm. now, 
And yeah. also, what about the fact that, you know, when, when we often hear this idea that, you know, um, uh, education isn't important in black communities, which also um, sounds mm. to me like a real flattening of, yeah, it is, it you is. know, <laughs> who we include in, in, I mean, black is a lot of different people with a lot of yeah. different backgrounds with a lot of yeah. different perspectives. And uh, the reason I say that is because black African children tend to do very well. Um, yeah, it yeah. tends to be more uh, black Caribbean children. And I, and I wonder how uh, you interpret that uh, difference. Is mm. it do with the history is it to do with the self-perception I'm wondering you know um whether you know the history the history is is an important one because I often hear uh friends of a Caribbean background say to me well the only history we ever hear is the history of slavery mm-hmm. whereas presumably if you're you know Ghanaian or Nigerian you know <laughs> that's far from the only history that you'd be familiar with yeah, and absolutely. I wonder whether there's a self sense of self um respect so a sense of um i guess identity which is denigrated more so in some black communities than others um based on the educational system that we have currently well from my point of view um i think that if we look at caribbean people as um i guess one of the first black diasporas in a in the British context. So to become one of the di- one of the first diasporas, we obviously had to be removed from our collective homeland. And that removal really means <clears throat> being removed from our uh, kinship networks and our languages and our ancestral families. So if we then are on this Caribbean island, islands and we are being um, forced to become Europeanized, and we've lost all of that previous connection. We are being flattened out, and it's 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 to the testimony of my ancestors in the Caribbean that they were able to recreate a vibrant culture that had echoes and memories, sort of. Uh, misty memories of the homeland but translated into this new land on on the Caribbean and kind of resisted that and formed a Caribbean culture. Now if you take the Caribbean um, hybrid because there's already kind of a a hybrid of uh, Afro-Europeans from the Caribbean bring them to the mother country they're having to kind of assimilate yet again and there's this flattening out um, effect of being a British citizen. So you can't sort of be Caribbean or your Caribbeanness is inferior. So you have to sort of flatten that out to be more like your white neighbours. Now, this process of flattening out is um, a key hallmark of capitalism, where the market does get flattened out because the whole thing around our culture You can't really control culture in a market setting because the social knowledge um, that is associated with our cultures is far too complex for a market to cost. So the market 
when you enter the market and we're all in the market it's not a choice we have we have to leave that social knowledge behind and we have to adopt market knowledge in order to get on in the market so, so is this a global economic market well, yeah yes yeah, uh, yes yes and I'm, I'm talking about mark the market in an ethical sense which controls all of our institutions so for me the market isn't just a an economic um, engine which it obviously is it's yeah. capitalism is a way of thinking it's a paradigm which okay. um, forms all of our thinking and our institutional foundations got it sense yeah yeah so, yeah so I'm talking about the market in that sort of ethical sense although it does follow in, in the economic sense as well so in order for the market to the raison d'etre of the market is profit so if we condense or or rewind the market to its inception when it traded in human bodies and and it traded in actual human uh, units of labor that's f where the modern market capitalism comes from where capital uh, is about ownership of property and property rights and under, underpin um, the modern market um, which is why IP and all the intellectual property rights and all of that and patents and which are still an echo of property are still hugely important because that's where the profit comes so when um, you enter the market in order for the market to make money off you and for you to make money off the market, the social knowledge, all that sort of complexity of what makes us human can't enter the market with us because the market can't control or put costs on that. So just to give you a concrete idea. Yeah. You. So if, say, I. Um, let's say I am paid to become. Um, carpenter and I my my form of carpentry is around for sake of argument um, um, sort of really upmarket um, Ghanaian wooden sculptures <laughs> so it's not yeah I'm just making plucking things out of thin air your the market is never going to pay me fully for the years of experience of being brought up in a Ghanaian household, learning my trade over decades and decades to become this amazing um, craftsperson who can then produce this little um, statuette in this particular style, which is sought after by the market. So the market can't um, remunerate me for all that social knowledge that brings me into the market. All it can do is remunerate me for this little statue with a kind of market estimate of the hours it must have taken for me to carve it and a kind of market estimate for my expertise or provenance in the field. So that so I've just explained or tried to explain how the market flattens you out by removing your sort of social knowledge that that makes you who you are to fit you into a market box where you are more easily controlled and costed by the market now if we ex if we expand that sort of ethical uh, model of the market to society then that caribbean hybrid um afro-european coming over to britain 
So they were already squashed by the market on the plantations. And then they're coming to the motherland where they're squashed again. So they're having to strip away even more of their culture just to fit in and to get by in this new market in called um, Britain or, or England, um, for those of us who, who came here, then it means then the Caribbean offspring of these people, so like myself, the trauma that we have had to suffer in order to be uh, blended into the British market, to even be treated as British people, makes us, puts us at a huge disadvantage to a first generation Nigerian family who comes over to the UK with all of their kinship networks and languages intact. So their children who are also under pressure to assimilate, um, they still have enough of their social knowledge to cling on to because their parents and grandparents are probably hopefully still alive. Whereas for us as Caribbean people, that's been stripped away and we've been flattened out. So we, we've become, in UK terms, almost sort of the neutral black people because we share the religion of the dominant culture, we share the language of the dominant culture. We're not really seen as a threat, we're just seen as, well, the colonised. And that, so we're not a threat. Whereas newer or more recently um, arrived uh, migrants, I'm not even going to call them immigrants, but migrants, they haven't been flattened out to the same degree as um, we have. Now, funnily enough, in um, South Asian cultures, what, what we're seeing is that, um, in British South Asian cultures, is that they are approximately 20 years behind us because what they're now discovering with their young people today is that they're becoming really, really homogenized into Britishness, losing their languages, um, losing their values of um, respecting their elders and things like that. So, so, you know, it is this homogenizing effect of whiteness in the British context that puts people at a disadvantage. And the reason why it does that, um, the system does that, is so that it can continue to exploit us um, colonially. So it's a form of domestic um, colonialism has now been transferred from the colonies, which are now no longer, but we now um, have the echoes of those far-flung colonies actually domestically in the UK. So the education system, in order to um, educate people into the system for it to carry on working and exploiting, has to segregate people. So in a way, in a roundabout way, what I'm saying is that we live in a segregated society. So we don't really have um, official Jim Crow laws or apartheid. Obviously, we don't have that. But in, if you look at the disparities and the differences of outcome and the differences of treatment. So, for instance, just as to take a teaching um, model, just to as an example, you can have um, a group of mixed abilities. You can teach the group for sake of argument. Uh, chemistry, for sake of argument, atoms and elements. And you can give them the same material and the same uh, tasks to do, but you can grade them differently 
according to the outcomes and learning objectives, the learning outcomes that you expect from them of their, their different abilities. Yeah. So that's in a wider sense what's actually happened, that as black people and people of colour, we're in the same system as everyone else, but we're being differently streamed within the system and we're actually being segregated in a hidden way through um, the outcomes, the life outcomes that are available to us. And it's colonial. So that was a really long-winded way of saying we're still under colonialism. No, but I think it traces those continuities in a way that makes them really obvious and importantly highlights them so that hopefully people who are listening who might be in positions where they might be perpetuating these things can hopefully think about ways to challenge it in that setting. Yeah. Um, I, I wanted to ask you um, about the so obviously I'm talking to you it's it's Black History Month right yeah, now yeah, yeah and uh I know there's a lot of different opinions on on Black History Month uh, some people feel very strongly um mm. about Black History Month and 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 how it's undertaken within educational settings um and one of the things that I was wanted to ask you about was uh the the value of different initiatives that are brought in during this month and just before we came on I was scrolling through Instagram and I saw this uh, quote one of these Instagram wisdom quotes which said the problem with slavery is it's taught as black history when it should be taught as white history Mm -hmm. and that got me thinking about black history month and about the fact that it's often used as an occasion to say oh well we need to talk about the history of slavery and Mm -hmm. then in my experience, those settings are kind of additional lessons that Mm. are offered and usually orientated Mm -hmm. towards black students Mm -hmm. as if this is something that's really important for them to know Mm -hmm. about. And everybody else is kind of like, well, it's optional. Yeah, that's the segregation I'm talking about. That's a brilliant example of that. Um, Black History Month for me personally is an anathema because it needs to be a black history all the time and I'd, I'd widen that to world history because actually black people white people all people irrespective of, of ethnicity we made the world as it is all of us so the complex interactions between different racial groups or ethnicities nations need to be taught because that that's what made the world. I mean, Gaminda Bambra talks about connected histories, which is quite a big, which made left a large impression on me because it's about the connection between the different world histories that has made up this modern world. So Mm. um, modernity wouldn't isn't just this European miracle, she would argue. It kind of came out of um, African and Arabic um, scholarship um, and that was sort of translated um, through the, the Greek and then later on Roman to kind of reach the, uh, Europe which is what I started off with when I said schools could literally teach the the history yes. of by doing that and and that's for me a really concrete example of how that could work in the classroom because by teaching that zero you'll be able to see the interconnectivity of different cultures across different times all merging um, on this concept of zero that Mm. is so important 
um, to us today in terms of our binary zeros and ones. <laughs> so, so on that note, if um, educators are listening and thinking, well, it's Black History Month, I don't really know what to do in my classroom. Would you say, well, you know, don't make Black History Month a particular event or do we still place emphasis on Black History Month? Well, it depends on the school policy, you see, mm. because, you know, we can talk about individual things as to what we would like to do in the classroom, but the average teacher actually has uh, policies and institutional expectations that they have to live up to. So if their school is um, expecting them to deliver activities um, in Black History Month, they kind of have to, whether they want to or not. Yeah. The reality of it is they've got their senior leadership team to answer to. But, but what I would the best say is, version of that that can be delivered then if you have to do it and you're required to do it. And actually, there might be some opportunity, presumably in there. Um, you know, I mean, I know that, for example, in my son's school um, and he's still very young, but it's been things like painting African masks. And I sort of raised with the school that although it's great to, you know, learn about African traditional masks, you know, um, there are aspects of black British identity that are not touched upon at all. Absolutely. Yeah, and, yeah. Um, and to make African identity something all the way over there, which yeah, yeah. is important to learn about, yeah, but yeah. Doesn't, to me, didn't seem to me like it was necessarily providing everyone in the classroom exactly. with uh, an understanding of black British identity. Exactly. Um, so I think the easiest way, and this is me talking from a privileged position because I don't have a senior leadership team to to answer to is if you're stuck with uh, Black History Month then use that as a focal point from which to explore different aspects of what you've just been exploring in, in October but throughout the year so if you are going to um, look at say African mask painting for sake of argument yes. then throughout the year because I know you've got in foundation curriculum they have design technology and that's what they would put that under so then you could across the rest of the year look at other um, mask painting activities and so you know the sort of um, Indonesian um, mask wearing and painting Japanese um, and look at the social um, contexts within which these masks were used. So you could use Black History Month as a springboard for um, other inquiry, more more sort of developed inquiry around the year. And I think that would be a way of compromising. Um, before we go to the quick fire round, which we are yes. now overdue to get to, I just wanted to ask you. Um, uh, this is this is a hunch. Yeah. Where does music? if at all, fit into your personal resistance to whiteness? Ah, right. So uh, many moons ago when I was a full-time musician and composer um, and my PhD, which was in, in composition, um, a lot of my PhD was about um, social justice issues. So I wrote a piece 
um, around um, the Stephen Lawrence inquiry when it was reopened by Jack Straw in 1997. So that organ piece was called Tribute to Mr King because that there was also the One Million Man March in Washington, which inspired me. So I, I wrote this piece about um, the One Million Man March in Washington, which I think was in 96, 95, and then the um, Stephen Lawrence inquiry um, in 97. I was really, I wrote a string quartet called um, What Will Happen to That Beauty? No, What Has Happened to All That Beauty? Which was taken from a line from James Baldwin's The Fire Next Time, where he's writing a letter to his nephew about the civil rights injustices in America and how debilitating and soul destroying it is. And then he says to his nephew, um, what has happened to all that beauty? So I, in my string quartet, I wrote um, what will happen to all that beauty as a sort of continuation of um, that um, discussion. So music for me, music making has always been political. In my undergraduate years, I studied ethnomusicology, which really opened my, my ears to music from around the world, particularly West African um, percussion, um, Tibetan um, throat singing and overturn singing and uh, Hindustani South, South Indian classical music. So my my compositions were always have always been influenced from outside the West or taking inspiration from black um, black cultural art forms like jazz or soul. And I, I suppose I was I was also partly asking because it seems to me that um, academia, which in mm. a European context is, you know, where thought is developed, where intellectuals mm -hmm. live, it's where, you know, any philosophy and ideas exist. Mm -hmm. But actually, that in itself is a very Eurocentric perspective, yes. because yes. actually the existence of wisdom yeah. throughout time has not been solely the purview of people who sit in libraries no, or universities no. and read mm -hmm. books and so I guess I was also partly coming from a, a, an Islamic background where it's like well we have a whole oral tradition which for a large part and arguably till today continues to be dismissed on the basis that it's an oral tradition and that it's mm -hmm. not a written tradition mm -hmm. um, I'm always conscious of the fact that there is so much of what we call wisdom and intellect and philosophy that's contained in other mediums that mm. we that are either dismissed or denigrated absolutely part, in my opinion as part of how whiteness operates it is it is because what you've just described was the the market in an ethical sense the market tendency to fragment so do you remember i was talking about stripping away the social knowledge and culture in order to right. enter the market well if we use if we look at academia as an institution that represents the market then the academia gains its power from stripping from siloing subjects from fragmenting subjects so one of the reasons why i i have struggled in uk academia is because as an interdisciplinary researcher yeah i bring too many things together and i willfully do that and i will not be fragmented but from an academic point of view so if you're talking about the research excellence framework which you kind of have to be sort of nominated in your department to participate you're not going to find favor with your management team 
if you're an interdisciplinary researcher that really is has their influences in different uh, disciplines and you kind of synthesize that to form that sort of uh, the knowledge formed by the connections not the knowledge right. formed by the the actual things but it's the connections between those things yeah. that form new knowledges and new perspectives and academia as one of the main players in the ethical marketplace um, works against that by fragmentation so people um, with my best so for instance as a musician as a composer it's been really hard for me in academia to properly combine my quotes and quotes creative work with my quotes and quotes academic work even though in my mind they are creative because I started out as I said as a composer who was socially aware and who wrote pieces around um, social issues and then ah so this is interesting so as a composer I was doing all that then in my work as a community educator I worked in um, a young offenders institution um, down um, in Staffordshire um, or maybe up in Staffordshire depending on where you are in the country or in the world and um, I was there for two years so a young offenders institution is a prison basically for young people between the ages of I think 16 and 18 so I was there for two years and I was leading um, a um, grime project where we were producing a studio album with the inmates and providing industry training so that the inmates knew what being a producer was, being an engineer was, being an artist and, and studio management. We sort of integrated that. And it was during that time, particularly in the second year when I was working with predominantly black inmates, that issues around race homophobia, misogyny, and yeah, Islamophobia, all sort of came to a head in our sessions because they were sort of exploring that in the music that they were writing, that I had to say to myself, and I wasn't yet a scholar at the time, I had to say to myself, this is really interesting and I really need to get to the root of why these young men have been somehow brainwashed into um, these values as a way of thinking that they are more commercial, that they're going to sell more records if they're kind of spitting about um, gun crime and shooting black people and talking about women as bitches and all sorts of horrendousness. So it was at that point where I discovered the practical nature of critical theory and the fact that I needed to become a scholar to actually make help the young men make sense of their experiences through critical inquiry but mm. if you move that into academia then what happened was is that I was forced to make a choice so I was either going to be a composer musician so even when I um, taught uh, popular musicology um, in the the unit of um, popular songwriting so we we looked at uh, different types of songs from different eras and they the students had to be able to write in those um, idioms so in my classes if you're going to learn about um, soul then you kind of need to understand the social issues at the time that those artists were working in right. in order to write the lyrics and the music authentically so yeah we I within popular musicology I sort of introduced them to 
um, critical theory and, and critical race studies and an introduction to black feminism because we were looking at um, black female representation in videos and stuff and because of the siloing or the fragmentary nature of academia that class got taken off me <laughs> and um, so I was forced to interview for that job and I didn't get that job that I was doing for two years and the person who got that job they were they didn't really go into the sort of social and to the critical theory elements that, that I did so when I left that department I was then sort of forced through circumstance to not integrate and I really tried so even as as recently as 2015 I was doing a project with the BBC with some young people that was looking at um, media representation of um, black young black people and um, that my department didn't even support that project even though it was part of the um, the humanities festival um, that we have for universities I still got astoundingly um, sort of yeah locked out of the institution because of the combination of disciplines that I was combining so, so it's yeah, there's something about the way that whiteness operates and the way that it's constituted knowledge, even yes. which, which which ultimately degrades all of our abilities yeah. to make yeah. really important connections. And the worst part of it is that in denigrating those other forms of knowledge or, or not even considering them forms of knowledge, it reduces our own ability to expand our understanding of the world because it reduces us to this almost like really narrow structure um, that, you know, and, and I often think about it when it comes to areas around uh, theology myself, because of course, theology in a Western academic framework is, is uh, you know, the study of fairy tales. Um, uh, whereas for obviously many other cultures, um, it's a uh, fundamental uh, part of a worldview, which yeah. cannot simply be dismissed as um you know, uh, it's important to critically assess yeah, yeah, uh, religion, yeah. but 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 certainly to to sort of silo it off as a sort yeah. of um, uh, a mere fairy tale paradigm that was used uh, to justify the functionings of society. I think it can be quite reductive to Absolutely. understanding how people have made sense of the world um, historically. But anyway, we we could talk all uh, evening, yeah, I'm sure, about exactly. these things. Let's um, let's get to the quick fire rounds. Um, very briefly, your definition of whiteness in a nutshell. A system of power, um, hierarchical and, and social ordering. What is the root of racism? The um, sincere belief that black people are um, inherently inferior to white people. What is the opposite of whiteness? I would say blackness only because um, white blackness is an artifact of whiteness and sort of paraphrasing um, Fanon. Is there such a thing as a post-racial world in your no. view? No. No. <laughs> <laughs> so presumably is that ideal ever achievable or desirable? It's only achievable if we change the current paradigm that we are in so we can't we can't achieve it within a capitalist neoliberal paradigm because it was set up on race racial capitalism is really what it should be called
Is whiteness a useful conceptual tool in conversations on anti-racism? Yes, it is, because um, whiteness is a universal applied to humankind. So a big example of that is the um, UN Declaration of Human Rights in 1948, which was opposed by some of the Arabic countries um, and they sort of came up with their own sort of version. So this universal tool, this universal concept of humanity becomes invisibilized and everyone's judged by that. And because it's invisibilized, no one, very few people are aware of it happening. So the more we can other whiteness in the same way that other ethnicities or identities are othered so that we view whiteness on an equal footing to blackness or uh, I don't know um, Muslimness or Jewishness or whatever we're looking at um, so that we can critically assess it like we would anything else. Thank you so much, uh, Dr. Orne D. Clennon. If people want to connect with you, uh, your work, your ideas, where should they go? They can go to my um, blog site, which is www.ornettdclennon, all one word, dot me, M-E. Fantastic. Well, thank you once again for taking the time to talk to us. Thank you to all of our listeners for tuning in to this episode of We Need to Talk About Whiteness. Please do subscribe on iTunes, Spotify or SoundCloud and join us next time for more conversations on whiteness.